of Revelation chapter 3. We left off Wednesday night looking at the church at Philadelphia. Uh, we were talking about its location. As far as some background information, you'll notice there on the map, if you have an outline, I have this picture on the back of your outline, but it shows where the city of Philadelphia is located. When it was built, it was built, uh, I understand, uh, originally constructed uh, by Alexander the Great, but since they didn't have seismic information, they built it on a fault line as far as earthquakes are concerned and it has caused havoc over the years in that area, particularly in that city, uh, as far as devastating earthquakes are concerned. Matter of fact, they had one, I believe it's in AD 17, and uh, pretty well flattened the city, and Tiberius Caesar came in, and he, uh, he uh, paid for its reconstruction. But uh, it's 20 miles southeast of Sardis is where its location is, dates back 150 year B.C., Named after King Attalus II, Philadelphus of Perg Pergamum, uh, who ruled and reigned in that area from 159 to 138 B.C. Named the city out of affection for his, his brother, uh, Ecumenes II. It's been called, from a secular understanding, a missionary city. It is from that city where Greek culture expanded uh, throughout Lydia and other places. And uh, it may be that Jesus even uses that concept of a missionary city to talk about the church that he refers to as the church with an open door. Uh, it's the youngest of seven cities. Uh, it, it was a place of prominent commerce. I guess that would be its significance. Wool, uh, dye, uh, 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 just a, a veritable uh, wine, wine, that we, it, it was wine country. A matter of fact, two gods had their temples that were established there uh, by the, those in Philadelphia, one to Dionysus, which is the god of wine in the Greek culture, and Bacchus, which is the god of wine in the Roman culture. Both of them had their temples there in the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia all ha also had a temple to Apollo. It also had a significant contingent of Jewish uh, people that live there with a synagogue as well. Uh, but it is the youngest of the, uh, of the seven cities. As far as the church concerned at Philadelphia, it was a church that has no words of condemnation against it. It was like the church at Smyrna, no words of condemnation against it. But unlike the church at Smyrna or unlike the church at, uh, I mean, unlike the church at Sardis that we studied before, this church at Philadelphia, the church at Sardis was not receiving any pressure far, as far as historical evidence is concerned from the pagans, as far as the pagan religion, as far as the Jews, or as far as emperor worship was concerned. That is not the case in the city of Philadelphia. They are under the gun in the city of Philadelphia. They are, there are slanderous Jews that are there that are giving the Christian church uh, uh, the Christians there, a very, very difficult time, along with the pagan religions that are there. They're just getting accosted from all sides. Uh, but it's one of the seven, uh, seven youngest cities. If you wanted to put a theme on the church there at Philadelphia, uh, you might call it uh, loyal, uh, but little. Uh, or another term that we've applied to the church there is a church with an open door the church with an open door. You see its location uh, as far as uh, the city is concerned. 
Prob it's not as prominent as Sardis was. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't hang out on several main thoroughfares, although a thoroughfare does go through there. It's probably it's not as prominent and as significant as the church uh, at, at uh, Sardis was as far as its location is concerned. Here are some pictures of the amphitheater that's been uncovered there in the city of Philadelphia. It's called by another name because it, it's, uh, its placement or the city is in the, is in the uh, uh, country of Turkey. So it has a Turkish name applied to it now. Philadelphia does mean city of brotherly love. It was a city of commercial importance. Uh, it was conveniently located as a gateway to the west. It was constantly threatened by earthquakes. A lot of the people would live out in, in away from the city because of, uh, of the danger of earthquakes. Uh, and they would live in the open country. Uh, the Christians there did face imperial rule, uh, oppression uh, from the Jews and as far as the... Uh, pagan religions that were there. The city of Philadelphia, uh, as you would enter possibly the city, you have the gate of Domitian. Now remember, we've mentioned that I believe, as far as our study is concerned, especially from the book of Revelation 13, Revelation 17, that there is an emperor that's in power when this, uh, when this book is written, when the revelation is written by John. I believe it was probably written around 78, 79 under the reign of Vespasian and is fulfilled during the reign of Domitian who has an emperor-wide or a empire-wide persecution of Christians. And so uh, this is the gate of Domitian. So we know that Domitian historically existed and uh, obviously he was uh, a person that sought to be worshipped as a god. Here are some of the temples that we took a look at. Uh, I'm not sure if this is Dionysus or Apollos. I can't remember uh, which one is which. But these are some of the temples that the gods were worshipped in. There's the amphitheater from a different angle. Uh, you can't see the people down there, but this is a huge amphitheater. Uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the background as far as the Church of Philadelphia that we looked at uh, Wednesday night. So Jesus tells and writes to John or speaks to John and tells him to write this, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will go out from it. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. So the first thing that we, we talk about here in the book of Revelation of words of comfort. And it speaks, it comes from the one who has the authority. We talked about this Wednesday night. 
The one who has the authority is the one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who has the power to open and has the power to shut. And they needed to understand this because they are a church that's weak. Now, they're not weak in faith, but they're probably weak in influence, they're probably weak in political clout, and they're also probably weak in size. Uh, when you find yourself being weak and being able to connect and, and move within a community to share the good news and bring people to Jesus, you're probably going to be weak in numbers as well. But they were not weak in faith. They were loyal. They were faithful unto the end, but they struggled because of the uh, oppression that came from the various outside sources. Uh, pagan religion, uh, Judaism, as well as the Roman Empire itself. And so Jesus says, I know things look like they're out of control and out of hand, but they are not. I've got this thing completely under my thumb. It's under my control. As far as letting people in, letting people out, as far as the rule of exclusion and inclusion is concerned, the Jews have nothing to do with that. I can touch hearts. I can still open doors of people's lives and to have them become Christians. And so Jesus is just pointing this out to them because when you're suffering, when you're being accosted and you're being persecuted like these Christians are, it doesn't look like Jesus is in control at all. And Jesus wants to remind them that that's not the case, that he's the holy one, he's the absolute genuine article, he's the one that has the key of David, which the Jews deny. They, Jews deny the fulfillment of Isaiah 22, that the Messiah has received the keys of authority that's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 22. And yet, notice what Jesus says. I have him. No need for any Jew today to wait for the Messiah to come. He's already here. He's already been here. And he already has the keys of authority. All things have been placed underneath his feet. And he's in charge. And uh, uh, so anyway, that's... Uh, that's the authority. Then he talks about a blessing. Then he talks about a blessing. He goes on to say, uh, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So they're still, in spite of the oppression and the persecution and the opposition, he is still going to use them as an open door. He's still going to use them as an open door. And they need to trust Jesus to let him do that. Okay, we took a look at that last week as well. Uh, it's probably during one of Paul's missionary journeys is when the, the church there at Philadelphia was established. Uh, we do not have the name Philadelphia used in the book of Acts. Uh, when you read the book of Acts, obviously, it gives us the history of how the church spread uh, to the uttermost parts of the world, known world at that time. Philadelphia is not a church that's mentioned, but when you take a look at some of the other churches that are located nearby, like Laodicea and things of this nature, obviously, probably either members from the churches where it had been established, they established a church in Philadelphia. I would say it was probably during the first or second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul is when a church was ultimately established there. But we have no, uh, no specific date as to what time because it's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, but obviously, from the book of Revelation, a church was established there. 
uh, because that's, he writes to the church that's there. So we do not know. Uh, the blessing is going to be that they're, the Jews are trying to, trying to close the door on the way. Now you know at one time Christianity was called people of the way. And the Jews are trying to keep the doors closed. They're not wanting anybody to, to, to come to Christianity. They don't want anybody following the slanderous man named Jesus. They don't want that to happen. And uh, they rejected Jesus. They crucified Jesus. They don't think Jesus was any way, shape, or form a Messiah. And he surely wasn't a king. And uh, so they've rejected him out of hand, and uh, obviously in crucifixion. And they still reject him in the city of, uh, in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, they believe that they still are the chosen ones in the city. They are the ones that are blessed by God. They are the ones that, that are only going to go to heaven. And unless you convert to Judaism, you ain't going to make it. And uh, so, uh, but uh, the blessing is, is that Jesus says, I have the keys of inclusion and exclusion, not the Jews. And uh, I have the keys to open the door. And he says, I'm going to use you, uh, even though you're weak, I'm still going to use you as a church to open the hearts and doors to other people's lives. Now, I've got to believe that, I, I, I've got to think that because of what he's going to say here uh, in the text, that there were some Jews who converted to Christianity. I believe there were possibly some Jews that converted to Christianity. And uh, in the city of, of uh, Philadelphia, I would imagine primarily most of the Christians that are there are Gentile. But I do believe maybe some of them had converted to, uh, Judea, uh, from Judaism to Christianity. So he says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, even though the Jews try, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, it would have been under stress and pressure from these various sources. There's always a strong temptation to, to, to throw in the towel, you know, why don't we just go along to get along? You know, why don't, especially if you're a Jew, if, you, if you're a Jew that's holding on to the traditions of Judaism and one of your members of your family converts to Christianity, they consider you dead. You lose your inheritance. Uh, they consider you dead. And, uh, uh, but he tells them here, he says, uh, you've kept my word and have not, have not denied my name. Notice, if you would, verse 9 now. We're going to be taking a look at rewards or words of promise. And he says, let me tell you what's going to happen. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. Interesting, isn't it? That's the second time, as far as our study is concerned, that when he writes to a church and there is a large contingent of Jews there that are giving Christians in that city a bad time, he calls them either a synagogue, a synagogue of Satan. Oh, they're not the synagogue of God's people. They're a synagogue of Satan. And uh, because what they are continuing to teach and the persecution they're putting against God's people and the rejection of Jesus, that's just an activity of Satan, our great adversary. And so uh, he says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Now, what are they lying about? Well, if you're a Jew living in that, if, they, if somebody caught on to this, if a Jew got a hold of this message or heard this word, that they are liars because they call themselves Jew, they would look around and say, whoa, 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 wait a second. 
My mother and father are both Jews. I'm Jew. That makes me a Jew. I'm circumcised. I was circumcised according to the law. I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's covenant-related people. And what does Jesus say? No, you're not. Well, wait a second. My mom and my dad are Jews. I've been circumcised the eighth day. Jesus says, you're still a liar. Well, how can that be? What constitutes a true Jew? There it is. Your belief in God, but your acceptance of His Son Jesus as the Messiah and King. That's what makes a person a true Jew. A true Jew is a person who says he believes in God, but also has accepted His Son Jesus as the Son of God, as the true Messiah. People who call themselves Jews then and now, they may racially be considered the race of the Jews, but they are not God's chosen people. The true chosen people of God are those who have accepted and received Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and believe that He is. Those are true Jews. Now, we can take a look at some passages that will, will validate that. Take a look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 just for a moment. Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, verse 28, 29. For he, who, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Now, what do you mean outwardly? Circumcision. Circumcision. What, what, what validated, what's the difference between a Jew and a Gentile? Circumcision. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And, th and his praise is not from men, but from God. So the true Jew is the person who's had his heart circumcised to, to receive, or who has received, Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Now look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of, of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Not only this, but there will be Rebekah when she has conceived twins by one, one, one father, uh, our father Isaac. For through the twins, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger, yes, yet it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? There is no justice with God, is there? May it never be. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Uh, he goes on and declares the fact that natural branches 
were broken off from the tree, which he speaks as, uh, for uh, the sons of Israel, and other, other branches were grafted in, which he speaks of the Gentiles. But a true Jew is a person who has accepted Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That's the true Jew. All people who call themselves sons of Abraham are only those who are sons of the promise. Sons of the promise. As a matter of fact, look if you would at the book of Galatians. Look at the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 starts off, You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want you to find out, want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun the spirit, by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? What was happening is that Judaizing teachers were coming through and telling them that they not only had to accept and live under the law of Moses, but they also uh, and, and, uh, not only accept Jesus, but they also had to accept the law of Moses and be circumcised or they were not in covenant relationship with God. That's the problem. And so... Some of these Gentiles evidently were wanting, going, wanting to go ahead and get circumcised so they could be justified before God. And Paul says, that's all been done away with. That's all been fulfilled. And so he's using the argument here. Said, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are, uh, who are the sons of Abraham. Faith in who? Jesus. It's those who have faith in Jesus that are the sons of the promise, the sons of Abraham. So if a Jew then or a Jew now refuses to accept Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, then what does God say about him? He's not my son. He's not a true Jew, <laughs> is what he's saying. He's not one of the sons of my promise, not at all. The Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith, are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? What's the curse of the law? You live according to the law perfectly, or what? You're a sinner. You die. You're separated from God. That's the curse of the law. The curse of the law demanded perfection. Under Christ, 
what, do, what is applied? Grace, the law of grace. However, the law that is not of faith, on the contrary, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, bless, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, this is a Gentile, man, I mean, a, a Jew who was talking, Paul the Apostle, who was known as Saul before he was converted. He was, there, he was the Jewish champion of Judaism. And notice what he's saying. Those who are true sons and daughters of God, true Jews, are who? Those that accept Jesus. Those that reject Jesus, whether they are physical descendants of Israel or not, makes no never mind. Only those that accept Jesus are considered to be true, validated Jews. Now, what are we spiritually speaking? Spiritually speaking, what are we? Jews. God's chosen people. Spiritually speaking, that's what we are. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's what's pointed out in those chapters. Anyway, I'll get off of this. But the Jews that were in the city of Philadelphia, Jesus says, no, they're not a synagogue of Jews. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're in opposition to my way. Uh, he says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. So he was going to have their enemies bow down to them ultimately and he would demonstrate as he always has his love to them by making them bow to them, bow at their feet. Now, who rules the world today? Who rules the world? Jesus does. And who are we? His brothers and sisters. Guess what we get to do? We rule the world today. We rule and reign with Jesus right now. Whose prayers are heard by God and answered? Ours. That's right. Ours are. Uh... We rule with Jesus. Uh, so he goes on to say, Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now notice we'll go on to say, he says, Because you have kept my word and my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, what does it mean that they are going to be protected? Does that mean they're not going to endure any suffering whatsoever when he comes? No. Have they been enduring some suffering? Yes. When Jesus comes, are they going to be, are they protected now during their suffering? Yes. When Jesus comes, are they going to be protected? Now, what does that word protection mean to you? Safety? Are they going to shed any tears? Yes. Are they going to experience any pain? Yes. Well, how can they be protected if they're, if they're going to shed tears and if they're going to experience suffering and pain? That's not, that doesn't sound like protection to me, does it, to you? 
Okay, their souls are not going to be lost. They are going to be protected in the sense that they will be brought through it. It's not that they're not going to suffer, and it's not that, it's not that they're not going to experience pain. It's going to be the fact that they're going to be brought through it. You and, what, what is the model prayer that Jesus gave? What's one of the statements in the model prayer that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew chapter 6? What is, what is the statement says? Lead us not into temptation, but protect us from... Now, one, one statement says evil, and the, another statement says the evil one. What does it mean to be protected from the evil one or evil? That you're not ever going to be tempted, that you're, that you're not ever going to suffer or have pain or experience some negative feelings or experience some negative circumstances? No. What does that mean? You're going to be brought through it. Does God promise to remove the storm from us? No, he never promises to remove the storm. What does he promise? That's right, be right there in us. Be right there in it with us. That's what he's promised. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the proving of your faith, the testing of your faith, produces patience and perseverance that you may be entire, lacking in nothing. Maturity, maturity. So he's going to bring it. That's what he's going to do for the church here. That's a blessing that they're going to receive. And then he goes on to say this. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. What, what's, what are they supposed to hold to? Their faith, their patience, their perseverance, their deeds. Hang on to those things. And then notice what he says. He who overcomes, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. What, what's that about? What's about having a name written on, on us or on the, church, the Christians there in the city of Philadelphia? What do you think, what image might have come to their minds when they thought about a name being written on a pillar? Well, if you went, to, if you went into the city of Philadelphia, would you find temples that are there? Yeah, God's names were written on the temple. Those that dedicated something to the God, like a significant amount of money, they had their name imprinted on the temple. That's the temple of my God, Dionysus, or Bacchus, or Apollos, or the temple of Domitian. Yeah, God says, let me tell you. How, how are those temples looking right now? <laughs> I wonder if you can find really any more names on them. But let me tell you, God says I'm, to the church of Philadelphia, I'm going to write a name on you, the name of my God, the name of the temple of my God. You'll never go out of it. You'll never go out of it. What is that talking about? What is significant about a name? What have we learned about the significance of a name? It's talking about the character, the essence of a person. And when he talks about writing a name on his people, what name, do we, what name are we proud of, Christian? That's a name that you and I wear proudly because the name Christian means Christ-like, a disciple of Christ. 
we wear the name Christians. Christians. Christ-likeians is what we are. God puts His name on us. Who was the pillar and support of the truth? The twelve apostles. What What are the stones that are being built on that foundation? You and I are what kind of stones? Living stones. And on those stones of the city of God known as the church, that's you and me. We have the name. What speaks of relationship, what speaks of endorsement, what speaks of position. And that's what God was trying to tell them. You know, when you're a poor little church, like the church at Philadelphia, and you're being oppressed, those are the kind of words you need to hear. We may be little, but we're strong. We're strong. We may not have much political influence in our culture. We may not have much influence as far as our society is concerned because they reject us. But we are strong. And we, not that temple of the Jews over there, not that synagogue of the Jews, we are God's chosen people. We are members of royalty. And that is something that God or Jesus was trying to express to the church there. Describes relationship, endorsement, identification, and position. They are honored among God's people. So what's this counsel? Verse 11 and verse 13. Hold fast to what you have and listen up. <laughs> listen up. Get a hold of this. Apply it to your lives. Hang in there. When I come, and I'm coming quickly, I'm going to take care of business. But you guys hang in there. All right. Next Wednesday night, we'll start taking a look at probably the most preached on church out of the seven in the book of Revelation. The church at Laodicea, a church that was called the Sickening Society.